So, Caitlin, who are we canceling today? How about the newly formed University of Austin? Oh my god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a gift that this dropped the day of our recording. <laughs> hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Olive Rash Klein. And you're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all of the panic around cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. So, Caitlin, I hate daylight savings time. It's getting dark too early. Like, I'm not ready for the seasonal depression to hit. I'm not here for this bullshit. Yeah, no. I mean, I took a nap yesterday and I fell asleep when it was light out and I woke up when it was dark. And I have like a video call with my kids every Sunday. And I thought I slept so late that I missed the call, but I woke up and it was actually it was like five o'clock. Ew. What the hell is up with that? <laughs> Ew. Okay, but here's the thing, Caitlin. Did you know daylight savings is a thing because of corporations? I thought it had something to do with farming. Mm-mm, corporations. Oh, okay. That's a lie. That's a myth that the corporations told us. Oh, I see. But also, I saw that on a tweet and didn't read further, so I might be spreading <laughs> misinformation right now. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe I'm full of shit. I'm pretty sure it's the farmers, which nowadays are corporations. So, you know, in a roundabout way, I think we're both right. Okay, I'm going to look it up real quick. (laughs) Um, Okay, I just looked it up. Actually, it has nothing to do with farmers. Corporations. What does that have to do with, Caitlin? Proposed in 1895 by entomologist and and astronomer George Hudson, the extra hours of daylight gave Hudson time to collect insects in the evening. That sounds wrong. We would not put all of this time switching hours for the whole country so someone can collect and look at bugs. Sorry, that doesn't track. Daylight savings time did not begin in the United States until 1918. More daylight hours does does add an advantage to farmers. It gives them more hours of daylight in the evening to work with their animals and their crops. Okay, so I found an article on quartz, Mm -hmm. and it says that... Many American children learned that daylight savings time was originally intended to give farmers an extra hour of light to work in the fields, and that this is a lie, that farmers actually hated this practice because it cut an hour of daylight in the morning. Hmm. Um, in this article, it also says the first and most persistent lobby for daylight savings in this country was the Chamber of Commerce, because they understood that if their department stores were lit up, people would be tempted by them. Specifically, we have the candy lobby, the barbecue lobby, and the golf ball lobby to thank for modern American daylight savings time. The golf ball lobby? What the? Look, I'm not sure about the specifics of this article, but it (gasps) is confirming my bias that it's corporations and business that created daylight savings and not farmers. (laughs) Um, And so I that is that is the truth that I am going to go with. Welcome to Cancel Me Daddy, where we do a deep dive on daylight savings time because we're pissed off about our naps. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was that was a rocky road, but we made it. So, Caitlin, I was looking at our Apple podcast reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, we got another kind of kind of mean one that I just yeah. I wanted to share with you because, you know, got to hmm. listen to everybody. We are open to criticism here at Cancel Me Daddy. So it's from Clololulu. Um, and the <laughs> review is titled Mediocre Minds. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm all ears. Hit, it, yeah. hit me with it. So, Clololulu says, listening to this podcast is like being trapped with the people no one wants to talk to at the party. Whiny. Everything they dislike is a disaster. Every existence of someone who does not think or behave exactly like them is renounced with religious intensity. But mostly boring, lazy, unremarkable. You could get the same takes from a hundred tweets. These people don't really have anything to say. And they're the last ones to notice. Hmm. 
So I do, I do want to concede that we were just talking about daylight saving time. <laughs> I did just try to spread um, information that I got from a tweet that was not vetted, but we vetted it. Um, <laughs> you know what? The next party I'm going to, I'm going to talk about daylight savings time now. I know. <laughs> But how dare they think that nobody wants to talk to me at parties? I don't even want to go to parties. I know. Like, please. I don't have energy for that. I can't be around a bunch of people. I've been socially isolated for two years. No, thank you. But anyway, if you want to cancel out this negative review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it because it's very rude and Apple Podcast reviews actually matter. So if you want to do that, we would really appreciate it. I'm really excited about today's show. Um, it's a really good one. We have yeah. a very special guest that Caitlin interviews, and it is truly a delight. Joining us today is the journalist and co-host of the Maintenance Phase podcast, Michael Hobbs, who's done some brilliant work on cancel culture and the whole thing. And I'm really excited to have him on today. Michael, how you doing? Uh, I'm always excited to be here and be your moral panics correspondent. Love it. Yeah. And actually, we were talking just before we started recording. You are our first ever repeat guest on this show. Huge. What do you think of that? I'm like uh, John Goodman on SNL. I'll take it. <sighs> You know, honestly, I think there's a natural fit between the work that you're doing and this show. So oh, I'm yeah. feeling this is probably not the last time we'll have you on. <laughs> yeah, every time, I, every time I listen to the show, I'm like, oh, I wish I could have been on this one too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm especially excited to have you on today because the mother of all cancel culture oh groups God. just dropped this morning, literally minutes before we started recording. A proud day for um, all of us. And that is the, uh, it's called the University of Austin, which I think was announced through a Barry Weiss tweet. Uh, <laughs> like The hellscape that we live in. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into the specifics, but like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean... Honestly, I kind of respect it at this point. It's like a Pac-Man thing where it's like they've gone so, so deep into the grift that they've like come back around to like a kind of respectability. So I, I haven't really looked into this and I don't know how much information is available, but it appears to be that a lot of these quote unquote heterodox intellectual dark web people with the same who only there's like 50 of these people now and they have the same three ideas and apparently they are founding a university to further disseminate these same three ideas and it's it's honestly like <laughs> from a purely like amoral cynical perspective it's such a great grift mm -hmm. because yeah. they're already getting money from like right-wing billionaires like some sort of Peter Thiel adjacent like right-wing weirdos they're also probably, yeah. I imagine, going to be getting some crowdfunding, some Patreon, Substack kind of Kickstarter money. And then also, presumably, they'll be charging tuition to the students that they enroll in these courses. So it's like they're making money three ways. Quote, unquote, students. Yes, exactly. And and <laughs> they're making money three ways. And they're the whole time, they are able to continue to cast themselves as like somehow anti-establishment and somehow saying these like forbidden ideas like this is the entire grift mm -hmm. is like no one else will publish these ideas even as these ideas are appearing extremely regularly in like the new york times and the atlantic and like places where ideas are in our society but like there's literally no level of like wealth or prominence that is going to get these people to stop saying like we are being suppressed it's just like this is the next level and honestly by this point it's like have a blast barry yeah, I mean, I'm reading through the list of like people who are involved in this project, and it's literally a who's who of the cancel culture oh, yeah. economy. You know, you have Barry Weiss, you have like Kathleen Stock. Oh, it's like Jonathan Haidt, Neil Ferguson, Andrew Sullivan. Yeah, no, I can't even like pick them out because there's so many like truly awful people. Andrew <laughs> Sullivan, Sahara Hamari, like. <laughs> and then, I mean, it's the same. It's the same brain trust that gave us. Yeah earlier this year, even last year, I don't know when anything happens anymore, but they founded a journal called the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which was exactly the same thing. Like, you can't get this published anywhere. And then the journal comes out and it's the same, it's the same three ideas. It's like trans people are bad and like race and IQ questions need to be asked. And like, are college students like the worst? 
Like these, these are the only three issues that are like forbidden. Like there's actually a lot of ideas in society that really are forbidden and like are very limited in where they can be discussed and like kind of are yeah. being suppressed. Very few of those though are like actually being championed by any of these people. It's like they have this perfect playground to do anything they want with it, you know, any academic literature that they want to. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, it's the, it's the trans, like are the trans people bad? Like, okay, great. <laughs> like, congratulations. Yeah. The same fucking idea again. And I find it funny too, like somebody like Amari, who I've written about before, I mean, this guy is like a nut job Catholic. And I can say that oh, yeah. because I grew up Catholic. I am now lapsed, right? So I'm allowed to say that. Um, but basically, uh, the, when I wrote about him, he was at the point where he wanted to install like a theocratic dictatorship to ban like drag queen story hour. Oh. <laughs> Playing the hits, so that's like, a classic. Love the story hour. Yeah, like this guy in no way believes in free speech. In yeah. fact, he tweeted about this and said, I don't believe in free speech, and they wanted me anyway. And I'm like, <sighs> what the fuck? I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's like, it's so exhausting at this point because it's just the same, it's like the same people and the same arguments and the same, the same stances on every single thing. And it's just like, okay, here it comes again. Like which, which, which low stakes controversy at which private university are we going to freak out about this week? Right? Like which dumb thing are we all going to complain about? Like in lockstep for like three days in a row while we're completely ignoring actual like democratic backsliding that is happening in the United States. Like, okay, which it's like you spin a wheel and you're like, okay, this week it's like Oberlin and like pronouns. Like that's what we're going to freak out about. <laughs> and then next week it's going to be Bard and like some, someone with like a pierced nose or something like that. It, it just like fill, it's like Mad Libs. Just fill in whatever the outrage is going to be. Wait, do you remember this? There was a meme a while back that was like the, the Vice uh, story finder. And it was like this dartboard, right? That was in the vice office and they would throw it and it like one of them would be like um, gender nonconforming immigrants from Bohemia (laughs) having this problem. And they're like, go, this is our story. But it seems like this is. Yeah, this is essentially what, what these people are doing. Yes. The central problem with this entire grift economy is that we live in a very big country and there's 330 million people. And something really fucking stupid happens every day. And like, you can, if if you make it your job to identify a particular brand of stupid thing happening, you can make that totally meaningless, stupid thing seem like a national crisis. So one of the things I, I was like pulling my hair out at my computer today, reading this announcement from Barry Weiss of like, oh, we're, we're starting this university because like we have all these like special ideas, only three that we can't say at other universities, you know, in American academia. And then one of the statistics that she says in this announcement was something along the lines of like, there's this, there's this database of like disinvited campus speakers. And it's like they've logged, I think it was like 496 disinvitations since the year 2000 and like speakers are being disinvited and i'm like there are 5000 universities in the united states yeah. since 2000 in the last 20 years 500 people have been disinvited you know what percentage of campus speakers that is there are 1.5 million professors in the us so like 500 in the last 20 years is like a fraction of a fraction of a percent like why like you're literally giving me evidence that this is not an issue of public concern and you're presenting it as an issue of public concern. I just did the math. That's 7,300 days. Well, yes. <laughs> so what was it? 400 over 7,300 days? It was, they said yeah. it was roughly 500, but then they also mentioned, I can't believe she actually included this. She said roughly half were successful. <laughs> So, even, so it's 250 canceled lectures. So it's 250 canceled lectures in 20 years. <laughs> like, wh- why would we be talking? Like, why would this be a national story <laughs> at all? Like, 300 people in America die falling off of ladders every year. Like, why? The, the stakes of ladders are bigger than this. So, like, why would we be talking about this? You know what? I'm going to start a podcast going after Big Ladder now. I, I mean, <laughs> like... Surely at some point, somebody should be called upon to like actually substantiate that there is an iceberg underneath this. And like, no one has been able to do it. It's just like, well, what about this anecdote? What about this other anecdote? Like, okay, man, it's 
330 million people. There's lots of anecdotes in the country. Yeah. I mean, so my, I guess my question is, why is there seemingly so much money in this? I mean, first of all, right-wing billionaires love funding this stuff. I think one of the ways in which right-wing billionaires, I think, are a lot more savvy than left-wing billionaires is that they give a lot of untied funding. So mm-hmm. I wrote a story about this years ago that a lot of these right-wing donors will just like give a bunch of money to a magazine to just like hire smart conservatives and like let them mm-hmm. do anything they want. Like it's a sandbox. Like whatever you want to write an article about CRT, you want to write an article about cutting taxes on the rich and how that's great, whatever. We're just going to like let you roam free. Whereas most left-wing billionaires have like it, it's all tied and it's Oftentimes there's these like sort of key performance indicators and there's like metrics that you have to hit and left-wing billionaires tend not to want to play in politics. They don't really want to get down into the muck of partisanship. They see that as like operating on a lower level of intellectualism than sort of rising above politics. Mm-hmm. Whereas right-wing billionaires are just like, yeah, do do partisan stuff, do politics. Like do whatever you want to do. Like here's here's 80 grand a year and like just just like do your thing. And we don't really yeah. have that model on the left unfortunately. And so People have to come up with these like much more complicated funding arrangements, whereas on the right, they're just like, yeah, here, here's free money. Do your thing. Do you think that that model would even work on the left? I totally think it would work on the left. I think yeah. nobody's really tried it. I mean, I've been saying for years that like if you really want to get more attention to left-wing issues, just like resurrect all of the alt-weeklies. Like every major mm-hmm. city in America used to have a really robust alt-weekly, like the Village Voice. Mm-hmm. And like most of those have like withered and died in the last 20 years for the same reasons that local newspapers are going under all over the country. But like, Mm -hmm. just like five, six reporters in like every major city in America, just like doing muckraking stuff. And some of those stories you're not going to love if you're like a left-wing billionaire, like some of those are going to go after you. And, you know, some reporters are going to be more skilled than others and some papers are going to be better than others. But just the idea of like alternate voices, like systematic amplification of alternate voices would do huge things for like, Mm -hmm fighting back the tide of disinformation and just like no one has shown any interest in doing that. That goes to sort of the death of of the newspaper, right? Because you saw the decline of the alt-weeklies around the same time as you saw, you know, the decline of the traditional daily newspaper. Right. And also all of the daily newspapers now, for completely understandable reasons, a lot of them are all paywalled, right? You get like three, three stories a month from like the New Republic or the New York Times or Washington Post. Whereas, like, if you read Breitbart, like, it's 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 free. Like, have a, have a blast. It's <laughs> it's yours. Yeah. You can read anything you want. Like, it's the same with Daily Wire, Daily Caller. Like, all these right wing websites, there's no limits on it. So if you if you want high quality information, you have to pay for it. But if you want really low quality <laughs> information that tells you the same thing and just like revels in this outrage all the time, like you can just there's a bottomless supply of that. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure how to fix that. I think that there's a lot of people actually trying to come up with. A- way to fix this and i don't think there has been necessarily a good answer yet right this is why i'm like so obsessed with shining a light on the way that these right-wing narratives are amplified by outlets Mm -hmm. like the atlantic and the new york times and other sort of mainstream liberal you know smart important establishment institutions oftentimes end up laundering these ideas into the mainstream and a lot of people who are kind of low information end up thinking like, oh, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of these controversies about, you know, free speech on campus. So this must be a big deal. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't think there's there's been a real diagnosis of the problem. Like the problem keeps getting called these like bipartisan things. Like people talk a lot about polarization, mm-hmm. which just sort of ends up blaming both teams. It's like, well, the left is becoming lefter and the right is becoming righter. And like that's a problem for the country. And it's like... On some level, that's true, right? Like, we have people advocating for Medicare for all on the left, but then we also have, like, people storming the Capitol on the right. (laughs) So, like, you can't solve the problem of asymmetrical polarization if you're not actually telling readers and, like, getting the country involved in Mm -hmm. understanding what's actually going on. We also had, after 2016, we had this whole thing about, like, echo chambers, We had this whole thing about echo chambers and Americans are in their bubbles and Facebook is so different whether you're left or right. And it's like, yeah, that like to some extent that's true. But then the right wing bubble is telling people like QAnon stuff and they're telling them that an election was stolen. Like they're telling them lies and like the left wing bubble, like, yeah, we're all to some extent in a bubble, but it's like, it's like everyone should have health care. It's like, <laughs> it's like yeah. one one team is trying to make the country more like Denmark, and then the other team is trying to make the country more like Hungary. 
And -hmm. it's like, well, one of those is just objectively worse, but there's this weird reluctance on the part of like establishment liberal institutions, even left-leaning institutions, to like identify what's actually happening in the country. Like the problem is Republican radicalization. It's not all this other like bipartisan balanced stuff. Why do you think that reluctance happens? Uh, I mean, that's like the million dollar question. I don't, I, I think there's something about like, the, you know, the old saying, I think the saying is like a hundred years old, is that a liberal is someone who's too timid to take his own side in an argument. I think there's something about this sort of the valuing of, you know, we want to hear people out and there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of race stuff too about, all, you know, all these stereotypes about like the real Americans, right? Mm-hmm. This thing of like, we have to understand like the downtrodden man. And, you know, even when like there's very good evidence that, you know, Trump voters were motivated by racism much more than economic anxiety, but it's like people still kind of retreat back to these economic anxiety or like hillbilly elegy type explanations. There's this weird mm-hmm. reluctance to just like identify what's happening and being like, we, we need to defeat this. And like, I, I, I don't, I don't need to like understand this, this form of doing politics. Like it's, it's actually really dangerous. And like, we need to actually like organize and confront it. Like this isn't, this isn't really a battle of ideas. It's, it's more yeah. a battle of like organization. And I think that there's a huge reluctance to like admit that partly because it's just really depressing to think about that. Like yeah. Politics really isn't like, it's not like the art of persuasion or like debate me, bro. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's like get out the vote efforts and like fighting back these like deranged efforts to like take away the right to vote and like gerrymander districts and overturn ballot initiatives and take power away from governors. Again, all of these efforts are being done by state legislatures, GOP state legislatures. There's nothing remotely congruent with this mm-hmm. on the left. And yet we're constantly being told that like the American left is like the problem and cancel culture and like there there's there's now this sort of like look what you made me do thing with the critical race theory panic yeah. of like oh well you know if you hadn't put so much leftism into the schools then like those these parents wouldn't have had to show up and like send death threats to <laughs> elected school board officials like it's it, isn't it really your fault in the first place and it's like I'd... no <laughs> <laughs> I love how we live in a world where like Terry McAuliffe is like the leftist boogeyman somehow. Exactly. Like I, I was moaning today about a David Brooks column that came out over the weekend that was like, you know, the, the American left has become totally insular. The American left has become totally unmoored from American voters. At no point, of course, does he ever define the American left. I mean, this is a term mm-hmm. you hear all the time and nobody even attempts to define like what is in and what is out of that term and like who counts as the American left. And like his leading example was like, how can you tell that the American left has gone completely off the rails? His first example was Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> that like the movie review scores, like some, <laughs> it was like, I think it was actually Hillbilly Elegy where he said that oh, like God. only only 15% of reviewers liked the movie, whereas like 92% of people who watched the movie liked it. And I'm like, the American left? Like, in what, like, is Nancy Pelosi organizing the movie reviews now? Like, this just has nothing to do with anything. And, like, this this is, like, what passes for, like, smart commentary. And, like, it's not, yeah. it's just objectively not smart. Like, this, like, there's no link between those two things. And yet, like, no editor at any point is like, uh, left is like a political concept and you're complaining about Movie reviews. This has nothing to do with anything. I can't wait for the uh, Rotten Tomatoes Reform Act of 2022. <laughs> it's enough. <laughs> we are sick of it. <laughs> I wanted to shift gears just a little bit because, you know, I'm looking at this announcement for, for the University of Austin and they they cite a couple of statistics where, you know, it's, it's stuff like 62% of sampled college students agree that the climate on their campus prevented students from saying things they believe. And you see these surveys all the time where it's like, these people, you know, claim that they can't say things that they believe. And I know you've done some work analyzing this stuff. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, that, that, I mean, cause they always use the same like four statistics because there's, this mm-hmm. is not a trend that's happening. So the only way mm-hmm. that you can make it seem like it's happening is to use the same like juked stats. So that mm-hmm. 62% figure is from a survey. I forget which year it's from, but mm-hmm. it, it's an article that asked students, have you ever held back an opinion because you were afraid what would happen. 
So over the course of four years, <laughs> have you ever not said something that you believe? Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know why it's not 100%. Like, I, like yeah. when I was in college for various reasons, I would not say things that I believed for like one reason or another. It's something like you don't want it to be happening systematically, I guess, although there's bigger problems with that in the country, honestly. Yeah. But it's like at some point in four years, you didn't say something. Like, what What the fuck are we talking about here? Like, that seems artificially low, if anything. And also, yeah. there's no indication that it's like it's conservative students doing that or like mm -hmm. that, that they have a realistic expectation of the consequences for their speech. So one of the things you often find in moral panics is that they're self-reinforcing because people believe that the moral panic is happening. So that makes them think that they're even more restrained. Mm. So if a conservative believes in the moral panic and they read Breitbart all day, they're probably going to tell you, oh, I can't even say anything on my college campus anymore because like I'll be smeared by the left. And that's not actually a reflection of the fact that that's happening. That's not a reflection of actual consequences for their speech. Yeah. That's a reflection that their expectation of consequences has changed. And that's a completely different thing. So all it's measuring is do people believe that they will face consequences for their speech. If this was an honest inquiry, they would be looking into how many actual consequences have there been for speech? How many students have been expelled for expressing a political view in class? Mm -hmm. And again, we live in a really big country. So like, has this happened in, in the United States ever? I don't know, probably, but there's no evidence that this is happening on any kind of systematic scale or to mm -hmm. like only two conservatives. So it's like they keep drumming up these like vapor statistics that like the minute you try to actually pin down what they're trying to say, they just evaporate. It's like, what the fuck? People one time didn't say something they thought? <laughs> Who doesn't do that a couple times a day? Yeah, I mean, like uh, the example I always bring up with that is like when I get misgendered, I usually don't say anything. And I could understandably count myself amongst the, the people who didn't say something they believed in that case, right? So like, there's no specificity to this. But then the other thing that you see is, you know, the example that conservatives seem to bring up an awful lot for some reason is like, conservatives can't get laid anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> I hate it when people hold me accountable for my uh, beliefs and actions as well. So I, I actually empathize with that one. Yeah, it's like, surprise, surprise, the kids can't get laid. Like, uh, yeah. dog bites man. <laughs> I also, I've actually been thinking about that one a lot because there's this weird sub panic of the trans panic that is like, oh, trans people think you're transphobic if you don't want to date trans people. But then conservatives are constantly saying <laughs> that like, you're a bigot if you don't date conservatives. So it's like, th this is already conservative canon and it's only when it's it's literally the same thing when applied to trans people is like a sign of their radicalization. But when it's conservatives, it's like this this like injustice that we all have to face, like this this sign of intolerance. So like what are we what are we doing here? Like there's no actual philosophical consistency to any of this stuff. There's this there's this double standard where it's like if one trans person says like something that is worded strangely on their Tinder profile. Like, it somehow becomes a story on Breitbart, and it's like a sign of something-something on the American left. And yet right-wing people can do, like, I don't know, threaten to kidnap the governor of Michigan? And somehow that never reflects badly on, like, the American right. Right? Like, the, the sort of the, the centrist and right-wing view is that we have to empathize with the American right, and if, like, we're just nice enough to them, like, they'll go back to normal. But we hear the same thing. Like, the, this happened after the Virginia election— where there were like prominent commentators, like people that have jobs at very high status institutions who were saying like, well, it's basically like the woke mob's fault. Like the, the reason why there's this backlash is because like the, you know, college students have radicalized so much and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. okay, so every single college student in the country has to behave <laughs> yeah. lest they end up in some like outrage story on Breitbart, right? Every single individual in the country. And yet, Right-wing people have no obligations to behave in any way at all. It's like, even from a strategic level, it's like you're never going to have a country where every fucking 19-year-old, like, refrains from saying something stupid. Like, we're, yeah. we're, we're just in, like, 
this is how the world works. Like 19 year olds are always going to be saying something dumb. And I think also the, the, the institutional advantage that right wing people have is that the, the, the violations that the status quo creates, like the ways in which the status quo is harmful to people is kind of background noise. Whereas anything that changes the status quo, it's like all of those growing pains somehow get projected onto like the left. Right. So Mm -hmm. anytime like you want to change, like there's always these, these dumb fights about linguistics Mm -hmm. of like, they want you to say this differently. And like, honestly, I think some of those attempts are like a little bit clumsy. Like I think, you know, there was this thing over the ACLU tweeting out like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote (laughs) and everywhere she said, woman, they replaced it with people. Yeah. And it just like, it looked like shit. They, they put people in brackets every time. It It was was like a really small, it was like a very short sentence, but it had like eight or nine different words in brackets. And it was like, I get what you're trying to do, but I thought it just like came off as kind of clumsy. Like you probably just should have picked a different quote in that case. Like I'm sure she said all kinds of other things that don't like put you in that position. Yeah. And it's like that somehow got cast because of course that goes into like the right wing outrage machine as like trans people made the ACLU do this. And it seems like this, this sign of like intransigence or like almost censorship mob mentality on the part of trans people. And it's like, it's not clear to me that trans people like really asked for that specifically. It's like, this is an institution that's like trying to do something nice. Like they're trying to have inclusive language. I think they kind of messed it up a little bit. They, They, you know, it's a little clumsy, I think, but like, Ultimately, it doesn't mean anything. Like the advance of social progress, you're going to try some stuff out and be like, mm, I, I don't know if that's really like the tack that we want to take. And then you change the tack. And this is like a completely normal process that happens. But somehow like this was seen as something like this was blamed on trans people somehow. Mm-hmm. When it's like, I, I don't think there were like people pounding down the doors of the ACLU to like add this thing to a quote. Like we want brackets. Like no one was chanting that. Yeah, I'd say two things to that. Um, no trans person I saw thought that that was like well done. Right. <laughs> um, like I thought it was cringy. I most of the trans people on Twitter that I follow thought it was cringy. Um, and the other thing too is like everybody remembers the the changed wording. Nobody remembers the fact that the ACLU tweet was about abortion. Right. And about right. conservatives attacking abortion rights. So it was like, right. uh, for a long time, I thought that a lot of these moral panics about trans people specifically were meant to distract people from the conservative sort of uh, legal redefinition of the role of sex and gender in our lives, mm. right? Because they're mm. trying to, to roll back to sort of a more Puritan time. And I think the the ACLU example is a perfect thing because like the ACLU litigates abortion cases all the time, and they were trying to bring light to the Texas law, I believe. Yeah, and nobody remembers that now. Right, and also it's it's this fascinating thing where it's like somehow these linguistic, these like totally standard linguistic changes, like most marginalized groups have asked for linguistic changes once they start to get Mm -hmm. more prominence. Like once their social justice movement starts to win, they oftentimes ask for linguistic concessions. This is completely normal. Mm -hmm. But like that keeps getting compared. Like this was compared explicitly in The Economist to like the confessional state, like basically witch hunts and like the the Spanish Inquisition. Like, oh, it's a sign of like creeping totalitarianism of just like, I'd like you to call me something different. But then at the same time, we have actual lawmakers in Texas passing this law that just emboldens any any member of society to like yeah. enforce an abortion ban on you like this is the way that they're getting around roe versus wade is that like anyone can sue you for getting an abortion providing an abortion anything and like that's not even like creeping authoritarianism like that is authoritarianism like that's like a vigilante promotion law yeah <laughs> so it's like language changes this totally normal thing is somehow this slippery slope and yet we're not getting like a wave of articles saying like, hey, this is this is like literal, like authoritarian stuff that we're seeing mm-hmm. in Texas. And like this this approach to lawmaking is spreading to other issues into other states. So there's literally like a slope that is slippery there. But it's like we're not getting these like casting things off into the future of like this could look really bad in 10 years. And yet for like trans people and like pronouns, we're getting that. It's just like the yeah. double standards are incredible. Yeah, I think that's a good place to sort of lead into 
the article that you wrote on Substack a while back, the Methods of Moral Panic Journalism, and you you reference an Atlantic article written by Ann Applebaum, mm-hmm. who, by the way, seems to be an accomplished journalist with you know a longer resume than I have. Yeah, I just read her book on uh, the Ukrainian famine. It was like really good. <laughs> She's like a really good writer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she compares like modern mob justice, quote unquote, to like Mao's cultural evolution and Stalin's purges. Yeah. And it just seems like it's insane. <laughs> I mean, you're as much of a scholar of this stuff as I am. Am I wrong in thinking of it that way? It's just, uh, it's it's like such a such a classic moral panic piece where it's like mm-hmm. there's this extreme accusation that essentially the American left, whatever that means, is, mm-hmm. you know, purging its victims. It's like, you know, compared to Stalin, compared to witch hunts, compared to McCarthyism, like some of the worst historical atrocities in history. And the only evidence <laughs> for this, like, really incendiary claim is, like, these, like, low-stakes, nothing-burger anecdotes, right? So it's like it mm-hmm. switches back and forth between, like, you know, cultural revolution where like people were literally dragged from their homes and like beaten to death in the streets and like people would murder the children of people who they considered reactionaries to like make sure there was nobody to commit revenge. It was like this awful like mass murder event, right? Mm-hmm. So it describes this. And then from paragraph to the next, she then switches to like the editor of the New York Review of Books had to step down <laughs> because he violated ethics norms. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, what is yeah. the line between these two things? Like, we're about to become this genocidal state. We have no, there's no government support for this. There's no motive, means, opportunity at all. And the only evidence you're giving me is like this totally normal thing happened in journalism. That like a person in power committed an ethics violation by publishing an article written by an abuser in which he described himself as the subject of a witch hunt. And his own staff was really mad about it. The public was really mad about it. He stepped down. Mm-hmm. And like somehow this is evidence for that. And so the whole article, it's just like incendiary claim, nothing burger evidence, incendiary claim, nothing burger evidence. And like this is always the pattern of these articles. Now, you got some pushback on this article, right? Oh, yeah. The uh, the uh, the response was great. There were two kinds of responses. The first one, because as I said, I, in, in my piece, right, I tried to break down, like, how these moral panics work. Mm-hmm. I said, like, I'm picking two articles. I picked this Anne Applebaum article, and I picked an article in The Economist that goes through mm-hmm. how it's like the witch hunts of yore. And so I said, like, there's been a million of these articles. I can't debunk all of them because that would be really tedious, and, like, I don't have the yeah. time to do that. So I'm just going to, like, pick two at random, and I'm going to debunk these two. So I wrote this article, and then it comes out, and then there were articles responding to me that were like, well, Mike— what about this anecdote you didn't debunk? <laughs> They'll be like, well, what, what Hobbes failed to mention was like this other random professor at a random university was also suspended from his class and like Michael Hobbes won't even acknowledge it. And I'm like, well, I didn't get to it because <laughs> there's only so many low stakes anecdotes that I can debunk. And like, it, yeah. it would just be really boring if I just listed them all. So it's like, that's not really a critique. And... Then there were a couple that said that I had, like, fudged some of the details Mm -hmm. of them. So one of the ones that I talked about was The Economist said that the left is banning books. Mm -hmm. Bad. And one of their examples was J.K. Rowling, whose books have not been banned. So that's not evidence for your claim. And then the second one was this woman who had written a book manuscript uh, that had something to do with slavery And then, like, the manuscript, people read early drafts of the manuscript, and they said that, like, her handling of slavery was, I guess, bad. And Mm -hmm. she decided, she's like, oh, this was a really big backlash before the thing is even published, and I'm just going to pull it from publication. Like, it's not worth publishing. Like, it's already kind of poisoned. Yeah. So The Economist uses this as evidence for a book banning. When Mm -hmm. that's that's not a book banning. Her manuscript was criticized, and she decided not to publish it. That's not... That's not censorship. That's not a book ban. Maybe you think it's dumb and bad. Mm-hmm. Everything involving the young adult world, I find totally exhausting. So I actually didn't look too far into the details of that one because Jesus Christ. Yeah. But it's like, maybe you think it's bad. Maybe you think it's it's not. But like the economist is saying it's an example of a book banning and it's just straightforwardly not a book banning. And then there was also like these weird, like lawyerly, like debunkings of me where somebody was like, 
it's not that her manuscript was pulled. It's that it was like in a pre-print publication. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, well, was it banned or was it not? Because it wasn't banned. Yeah. <laughs> My entire point is that a lot of these stories are dumb. <laughs> like a lot of these like quote unquote cancellations of professors are stupid my, my entire point is that, like, stupid things happen in the country. You have to actually substantiate the claim that there is something, some pattern, some actual trend happening underneath these random stupid things happening in the country. And, like, I haven't seen anybody actually respond to my actual argument. Have you found an example of, quote-unquote, cancel culture, specifically on campus, that you personally have found concerning? My... My sort of my whole argument is that like that that feels like you're like seeding ground, right? It's like, oh, we found one. And like yeah. even Michael Hobbs admits <laughs> that like this one sucks. But the whole thing yeah. is the 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 question of like whether it is concerning depends on whether it is widespread. Like, does this actually represent a trend? Well, I wanted to ask you, you know, all of these people that they're complaining about these workplace disciplinary issues, but the problem is always for them the left and not like workplace policies, right? So like if your problem is with professors, you know, getting arbitrarily fired, why aren't you lobbying for more professor protections rather than saying, well, the left needs to shut the fuck up? Well, this is the thing is like, I feel like with this whole kind of movement is it's it's really hard to pin down on any hypocrisy because the hypocrisy is just like right there. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, I know people that are actually concerned with academic freedom and like what they talk about is like funding, like the funding of universities, who gets hired at universities. I mean, if you're actually concerned with academic freedom as a nationwide issue, then yeah. like you would be looking upstream. One of these people, there was an Atlantic article about like the latest exhausting cancellation of a talk. Like, again, nothing burger of an anecdote. Yeah. And it's gone around and like one of the lines in this Atlantic article is like trying to stake out the position. There's no right to be invited to speak on a campus, but universities should never invite a speaker and then rescind the invitation. What? And it's like, you say that you're concerned with freedom of expression, but then you're defining freedom of expression as only applying to this tiny scenario, right? Yeah. It's, it's basically the only scenario that allows you to blame left-wing college students on some level, there's an awareness that if you gave a shit, you would be looking at these much broader issues, right? Like who yeah. gets published, who gets tenure. There's so many layers to academic freedom that if you were interested in that, campus speakers would be like the 17th place on your list, right? Like yeah. the, it's almost admitting that like, no, we know that like systematically certain people do not get invited to speak on campuses, but to admit that, to, to frame that as a problem, doesn't allow us to blame 19-year-old college student SJWs yeah. who cancel a speaker for like, I don't know, for like saying that Charles Murray's book was good, which is like, that's a bad opinion. And like, maybe those people shouldn't be speaking on campuses. This is the thing is like, there's always this attempt to, to make it about some content neutral principle, but mm -hmm. mostly it's, it's really just about whether you agree with the speaker or not. And like, I, I think if we were all just honest about that like if you think transphobia is fine you you agree with transphobia and you think that people should be able to say transphobic stuff then like fucking say that right don't don't hide behind this thing of like oh it's a challenging idea and uh, i don't know if i agree on the merits but like people should be able to express their views it's like <laughs> when the only people you say this about are transphobes <laughs> and you always yeah. find some philosophical content neutral principle to defend a transphobe every single time. It's like, no, you just agree with the transphobes, but you're too chicken shit to just say that and defend the transphobia. They keep pushing the debate to this like meta debate about yeah. like which ideas and like ideological diversity and stuff. And it's just like, this is what makes it so exhausting is because people are not actually saying what they think. And like most people have exactly the same view that I do which is that like people with good ideas should be platformed and like people with bad ideas should not. And like it all comes down to your definition of like what good and bad are. But like that yeah. that's people's actual view. To bring it full circle and I I appreciate your time. I think I want to wrap this up. I realize I'm exhausting to speak to. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm no. like this as a person. I'm really sorry. <laughs> that's not it at all. I swear. <laughs> um <laughs> 
you know, we have this uh, quote unquote university that's not accredited, won't be awarding degrees, but we'll be allowing sort of controversial people to speak to a paying eager audience. Do you think that there are growing incentives now for academics or intellectuals to get quote unquote canceled? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't actually think that very many people do it deliberately, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I actually think that most of the people, you know, listed on Barry Weiss's Substack and with this university, I I think most of those people believe what they're saying. I I, I think that a lot of it is motivated reasoning, that they're having an emotional reaction to something that like, oh, someone like me is being denied an opportunity and that could happen to me. And so they come up with these quote unquote content neutral reasons to be mad about it when actually it's just like kind of basic personal anxiety. I think, I mean, whatever, all of us do this at all times. Like it's that, that as a mechanism is totally fine. But I think that like with the rise of crowdsourcing of things, things like Substack and Patreon and just the sort of the further fracturing of people onto these like other platforms, especially crowdfunded platforms, I have Mm -hmm. noticed that every time we tweet about like we screenshot a one star review of one of our podcasts and tweet it out. And it's like someone saying like some, you know, these libs suck or whatever. And we tweet out a, a, a review and we kind of like roast them or like laugh about it or something. We get a huge spike in subscriptions on our Patreon. Yeah. Like people love to support an underdog. And like, this is why, this is why we stopped doing it is because it felt manipulative because the vast majority of reviews that we get on our podcast are positive. Like most of the feedback that yeah. we get is positive and people are really nice, but I could go through those reviews and every single day I could find, I don't know, one, one star review. It's not that hard. And like tweet it out as if like, Oh, I'm being attacked. Like I'm under attack by all these forces (laughs) against me. And like, that's just not true. But like that, that makes people want to support you. That makes people want to sort of be on your team. And I think that's why this stance of like, I'm being suppressed. I'm being silenced is so important because it allows you to get support because everybody wants to help an underdog. And it also helps you distract from the content of your actual views, right? You, you, you make it a meta discussion about like, why won't they give me a speaking slot at this university? And not about like, well, actually all your ideas are totally discredited. And it's like some boring, <laughs> like 1980s trickle down nonsense or the like anti-white racist, just like complete garbage mm-hmm. that people have been saying for decades and has like never had any credibility behind it. But it's like always pushing it up to that meta level and being like, I'm being attacked. And like my critics are like so rabid and out to get me. It's just, you know, in a world with crowdfunding and in a world where attention is this precious resource, it's just a really good way to get those two things. I think it's really sad, but that's just me. (laughs) I mean, I think you should just tweet out more of your one-star reviews. It's great. Just we did do a whole roast it. of this one review that complained about the the vocal fry that Oliver and I had. <laughs> those <laughs> are my favorite a, ones. We get those too. And, yeah, and it's just a buzzword for like misogyny. Totally. Upspeak too. Do you get the upspeak ones? <laughs> yeah, we had upspeak also in the awesome. same comment. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> all right, Michael. Well, I really appreciate your time, and I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to uh, check out your Substack and your podcast, Maintenance Phase. Uh, I think both of them are really great. Thanks. I'm going to start drafting my negative review. I'm really concerned about your vocal fry. <laughs> glad we glad we got that out in the open. Um, Caitlin, I am very excited for some out of context cancellations. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> So we have some requests, and I think the first one is going to be a no-brainer. Yes. We've been asked to cancel BBC and the turf propaganda. Yeah, I'm all for it. Oh my god. I The internet has been awful for the last what two weeks it's just been i i can't be on the internet there's too there's too much shit going down i'm resisting the urge to add context to this because i could turn this into a whole show on its own Mm, let's let's not i'll sum it up by at one point in the uh camp the presidential campaign last year joe biden was asked a question by the bbc and he responded with bbc i'm irish and just walked away laughing and that's kind of how I feel. I'm sorry. I didn't understand any of that, Caitlin. No, wait. it did not come through. Wait, wait. Did, did that really happen? Did Joe Biden really do that? Yes, he did. There's a clip of it. Okay. 
Okay. So that really, I was just like, is this a weird, is this a weird bit that we're doing? I don't understand. Thank you for giving that context, Caitlin. (laughs) Okay. So someone wanted to cancel carpal tunnel syndrome. And uh, yes, let's please do that. Um, I have had two carpal tunnel surgeries. Yikes. Yeah. Um, And carpal tunnel sucks. So let's just get rid of it. Boom. Let's do it. It's gone. Next, we're going to cancel CVS. No context. I don't know why. Um, it is a corporation, which I don't like, as we, <laughs> we have discussed earlier in this episode. So, yeah, we're we're getting rid of it. Also, everything's overpriced at CVS by a lot. Yeah, it's no fun. And then in addition to large corporations like CVS, we are also going to cancel small business tyrants. Again, no additional context here, but I don't like tyrants. And sometimes people are on power trips and they need to be knocked down a peg or Mm -hmm. seven. If you'd like to submit your own out of context cancellations every other week, you can do so by joining our Discord. And you can get access to the Discord by becoming a patron on our Patreon. And if you do that, there is also an option of getting episodes early and other perks your support helps us become a weekly show you can join and learn more at patreon.com slash cancel me daddy today's show was made by me oliver ash klein and my incredible co-host caitlin burns daniel peterschmidt made our theme song and edem mw designed our graphics our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work especially the members of our canceler hall of fame with the great power to cancel all of their enemies Meg and Dahlia. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling! <laughs>